0: Take your copy of God's word, turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Today, reading chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 12. And for those of you who are visiting with us today, who are just joining us, uh, this is very much a part two sermon. Uh, so last week, we read this whole passage and focused really on verses 6 to 10, the coming judgment at the end of days uh, that God declares. Uh, When Christ returns to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all those who believe. I say that to let you know that we're not going to touch on that hardly at all today. And so you may say to yourself, there's an awful lot that's missing. And, And the answer is, you're right. Uh, We're going to look really at verse 5 in the beginning and verses 11 and 12 that bracket this passage uh, and and that remind us, as Paul says, what it is to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. So 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, today reading uh, verses 5 through 12. And before we read this text together, let's join in a word of prayer and seek God's blessing in our study. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and we pray that you would give us hearts to see and receive and rejoice in the truth of it, not just in the truth of this word, but in the truth of our Savior, the one who is to come, uh, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Oh, Lord, give us faith to know you and to call upon you and to be counted as yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the present presence, excuse me, let me start verse 9 again so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. When John Stott uh, wrote about Christian prayer, he described it as a bridge that connects two realities. He said, Prayer is that which links the future to the present, the vision of what is to come with the reality of what is. There are simpler definitions of prayer, if you'd like to find them. There are certainly more elaborate ones, uh, but I think this is pretty good. This is a pretty good definition of prayer because it helps us to answer one of those primary questions that many Christians have about their prayer life, and that question is, what should I be praying for? Should I ask God for anything? Should I ask Him for everything? Is there anything that's off limits? We'd love to have a bit of direction now and then. Stott says that prayer links us to the vision of what is to come. We can be a bit more precise. Prayer links us to God's vision of what is to come. In God's Word, He has given us promises. He's given us prophecies. He's told us what is to come. It's true that He hasn't told you about the particular details of every day of your life and what it will entail for you to walk with Him in faithfulness. He hasn't given you every step along the road, but He's given us the basic shape. He's told us, in a large way, what He's doing in the world that He created, what He's doing in His church, what He's up to with the universe Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says that God has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. A plan to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That is God's vision for the future. And the purpose of our prayer is to orient our lives and our faith toward what God has said he is up to. And so another definition, Eugene Peterson says that prayer is answering speech. That is that, first of all, God speaks to us, and in response we speak back to him. God speaks to us of who we are. He speaks to us of what we need. He speaks to us of the salvation that he has provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God speaks to us, first of all, about what we are made for. He tells us how to think about poverty. He tells us what to do about suffering. He tells us how to deal with disagreements. He tells us when to speak a word of encouragement. He tells us how to repent. He tells us how to work, how to love, who to marry. God tells us what he's doing to make all our human sin and misery come out in the end for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. And prayer takes us from wherever we are in that process and turns to the Lord to say, yes, give me more of that. Whatever it is that you're doing, wherever it is that you're leading, Lord, keep me moving in your direction. It's right there in the beginning of the prayer that Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So prayer, says Peterson, is answering speech. Stott says that it links the future to the present. And somewhere near all of almost all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he demonstrates what that looks like for us. And most of them, as they do, as it does here in 2 Thessalonians, most of Paul's prayers for the church, his model prayers for the church, show up in a context of of dual realities about what's going on. So you notice in in verse 10, in this context, uh, Paul declares this future glory of Jesus and if we were to go back to verse 4 we'd see that he's acknowledging the present suffering of the church we wonder how can those two be reconciled present suffering and future glory how can we see this wonderful vision of God that he is promising through what is in many ways a very difficult present reality and the answer is prayer the lens through which we fix our eyes on the glory of God waiting to be revealed when Christ returns for his church. So we're going to be studying primarily this prayer today, Paul's prayer and our own prayer. And as we do, there are two realities we need to keep in mind, two points for our sermon today. The first is God's future promise. The second is our present need. Not just today in this passage, but in all of our prayer, what we need to keep in mind is God's future promise and our present need. We begin with God's future promise, and here our focus is on verse 5. Paul says that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Already now you see some of this tension between what we sometimes call the already and the not yet. What is and what will be. Verse 5 is somewhat of a transitional verse. It lives in this space in between. It's connected to verse 4, and so it touches on that present experience of God's people. It's also connected to verse 6. It's leading there. It's reaching out to take hold of God's future. And so it sits right there in between where Paul is telling them, yes, there's endurance in the church. Endurance and faith through affliction and persecution, that's what's happening now. But he's telling them, you know, someday there's going to be relief. Someday there's going to be glory when Christ returns. And you see that, clearly enough, the way that it touches on both of those. But but the somewhat difficult claim uh, in verse 5 is that for the person who has faith, there is a logical connection between the two. The faithful suffering of God's people actually points forward to the future judgment of God on their behalf. In fact, there's a sense in which we can say that one necessarily leads to the other. That when we see the faithful suffering of God's people now, it requires us to expect that God will vindicate them when Christ returns. That he will declare his judgment for their eternal blessing. Notice, as you look at this verse, the courtroom terminology that Paul is using. He speaks, of course, of the language of judgment. That's God's verdict. In a courtroom, you can either receive a judgment in your favor, or a judgment may be passed against you. In a courtroom, you can either be acquitted, or you can be convicted, There's a verdict going on here. The verdict, Paul says, that belongs to God's people is that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Their citizenship with the saints will be revealed. At the last day, when Christ returns, they will enter into the joy and the glory of their master. They will receive God's declaration for eternity, stamped upon their lives, worthy of the kingdom. It's his judgment. The other Courtroom language he uses is evidence. He says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And so we know how this works. If, if this were a rerun episode of CSI Miami, we would all be looking, uh, scouring the floor for, for hair samples and trace chemicals and all that forensic stuff, right? We know that evidence is, is the body of proof that leads to a legal decision. In 1972, Josh McDowell published his Christian classic, modern Christian classic, evidence that demands a verdict. That's how it works. If the evidence is there, you expect the verdict. And that book, of course, was a series of proofs that he hoped would lead any rational thinking person into the truth of Christianity. There's a twist in this story. And the twist is that when Paul thinks of the evidence that demands God's verdict of worthy, What he's thinking about is the way that these believers in this church in Thessalonica are suffering for the sake of the gospel. The evidence in mind points back to verse 4. Read it again. Paul's referring to what he calls their, their steadfastness and faith. In all their persecutions and in the afflictions they're enduring. He's referencing the whole lot of it. Not just their suffering, but the fact that they are suffering with faith that they're being afflicted for the sake of Jesus' name, and they have not yet abandoned him. Despite the storm of persecution they're facing, these winds were not strong enough to capsize their hope in Jesus. And Paul says, when I see faith like that through suffering, I know that God has good things in store for your future. Now, you know, of course that this is not the same conclusion that the unbeliever comes to when they examine the same evidence. Not very long ago, I think it was uh, 2014, the end of a live presentation at at Whitmore College, Neil deGrasse Tyson was speaking there, and at the end, he was was taking questions from the audience, and a young man raised his hand, and he asked that all-important question of a a well-known scientific agnostic, important question to ask. He said, Mr. Tyson, do you believe in God? Well, Tyson answered with the event that he says sparked the modern atheist movement. The event was the Lisbon earthquake of 1750, I'm sorry, 1775. It happened in Lisbon, Portugal. It was a natural disaster that occurred on All Saints Day in one of the most religiously devout cities in all of Europe at the time. A terrible earthquake, followed by a tidal wave through the river, followed by a a fire that ravaged the city. And upwards of 80,000 people died, many of them trapped beneath crumbled cathedrals. And Tyson points to that suffering of, of that day, and he claims that, you know, if a god exists, then he certainly can't be the god that most people are expecting. He certainly can't be the God that Romans talks about, the one who rewards those who seek him, right? He can't be the God who is all good and all powerful, and he can't be the God who can be trusted to be good and powerful for his people in the future. And you've heard arguments like that. You've heard the skeptics point to human suffering in general or or to Christian suffering specifically. And they deduce that if these are the things that God lets happen, then we have no right to expect anything good from his hand in the future anytime ever. It's that old nugget that says that if bad things happen to good people, it's proof. Either that God is out to get you or that he simply doesn't exist. Of course, there are answers to questions like these. Many answers, and this is a bit of a diversion, but we we could answer those sorts of questions the way that Jesus answered a similar question. You remember the time that a group of people wanted to know about those Jewish worshipers in the temple who were slain right in the middle of their worship, who who they say their blood, Pilate, mingled with their sacrifices. They wanted to know about that crowd of people in that town called Siloam when the tower fell on them and crushed 18 of them, and they all died at once in this terrible catastrophe. They came to Jesus with their inferences. They came with their conundrums about what this might mean about God or what it might say about those people. That's how it always goes. Natural man is always trying to draw simplistic conclusions from human suffering. We're always trying to find the right formula for right people plus right action equals optimum outcome. And we're always falsely assuming that human pain is either evidence that God is displeased or that he doesn't exist. But if you remember that passage, you know that Jesus goes in a different direction. You Remember that Jesus used those questions about suffering not to say that we we can cancel God now. Obviously, this writes off the whole thing. No, no, he he uses it as a reminder of how much we need him. Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did he mean that a tower was going to fall on them as well? No, he he meant, he was telling them that this present world is, is not all there is to be concerned about. He said something similar elsewhere. He said, do not fear those who only kill the body. In other words, there's more to reality than the lessons you can learn by by watching who comes out on top in this life. And so the truth is that that human suffering in general isn't evidence that God is sleeping. And Christian suffering, your suffering, more to be exact, doesn't prove that God has forgotten you. In fact, Paul says it might just prove the opposite. So Paul tells the church that when he sees them trusting God through their suffering, he doesn't see it as evidence that their faith is delusional. He sees it as evidence that God is for them, that God will be with them. All this is evidence, he says, of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. We want to know how does that work. Remember, first of all, Paul is using Courtroom language. When he says that God will consider them worthy of his kingdom, that phrase should smack in our minds like a gavel. Paul is looking forward to the verdict of God at the great day of judgment. Last week we we read these sobering verses in the middle of our passage, and we won't rehearse all of them now, but we found in verses 6 to 10 that God has appointed at the last day when Christ returns a day of division for all of humanity, a day of separation that when Jesus returns there will be wheat and there will be chaff, there will be sheep and there will be goats. There will be, on the one hand, as verse 8 tells us, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, verse 10 says there will be the saints. There will be those who have believed the testimony that the apostles preached. This word of a gospel that there is a God-man who came and lived and died and was resurrected for the salvation of his people. And we learn that the dividing line on the day of judgment will be faith or unbelief, trust in Jesus or rejection of Him. That's the future that's coming for all people. In verse 5, Paul is telling us, if you want to see what God has for you in eternity, just look at the way He's making you hold on to Him now. It's not meant to be a challenge for the church. It's not meant to be a word of law. You better believe better. You better get your act together. That's not what he's saying. This is gospel encouragement. Verse 3, he's already thanked God himself for the faith and the love that the Holy Spirit is working into their lives. Verse 4, he told them, you know, when I go around to other churches, I boast about what's happening in Thessalonica every time I tell them what God is capable of. The church already knows where his focus is in this prayer and this thanksgiving. It's on God, it's not on them. And despite all that, he knows that in the midst of our suffering, we are tempted to think that our hardship might mean that God has nothing good left to give us. Actually, that's the the problem of our faith, isn't it? When we think about the problem of suffering, and we, we put that in big air quotes, what we think about is a, a philosophical idea that has to be answered. We can handle it so long as it stays out there. We can sick our apologetics and give all of our answers to this question of what do we think about these natural disasters, but just you let that affliction and that suffering come close enough to touch us. Just you let it get close to your family, to your own livelihood to your relationship or your marriage, well, that's when we start to fear the worst about our faith. That's when we wonder if if we're going to hold on, if we'll make it all the way to the salvation that God has promised to those who love him. But because Paul is a pastor, he speaks into that uncertainty with a word of encouragement. He's telling them in verse 5, I see your faith, dear sister. I see your steadfastness, Christian brother. I see it in the way that God himself will not let you let go of him. He says, I see God's goodness for you in a faith that God will count his righteousness at the last day. That's God's future promise for all of his people, that for those who believe in Jesus, that's the dividing line, remember, those who believe in Jesus, God will give them the righteousness of Christ by faith. It's a declaration. It's a verdict. He will count them or consider them or declare them worthy of his kingdom. He will give them eternal life in Jesus on the day when he comes to be glorified in his saints and marveled at among those who believe. That's the future promise that Paul sets before us. And it's with that that promise in mind that he turns his prayer to our present need. Look down to verses 11 and 12. To this end, coming on the heels of all of this glory and all of this future judgment and all that's going to be revealed when Christ returns. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you see the way that he's tying together a few threads that up to this point he has intentionally left hanging. It might be a bit obscured by the fact that we've we've taken these verses out of order, the fact that we're taking a few weeks to go through it. But again, in verses 3 and 4, his focus is on faith and steadfastness. In verses 6 to 10, he's pushing us towards the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Connecting those two ideas was this verdict of worthy that we just saw in verse 5. And now in this prayer, he takes all of those concepts and he gathers them together. Faith and glory, and what it means to be made worthy. Now, here I need to quibble just a little bit with the translation that we find in our English Standard Version, in verse 11. In the ESV, the prayer that connects faith and glory is the prayer that, that God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve and good work by his power. My quibble is with the word make. If we read this verb, uh, this, this word carelessly, and, and some people do that, we can get the impression that worthiness for God's kingdom or worthiness for God's calling, well, that it consists in something that is built up within believers. That it's something that we're made into, little by little by little, that it's something that we can become. Let me put it crassly, if I can. If we're not careful, we can hear language like this and we can imagine God's salvation like an amusement park ride with a sign that's out front as you're going through the entrance and there it is in, in big bright colors with a cartoon frog and he's got his hand stretched way up high and the caption says, Sorry kids, you must be this holy to ride this ride. And we look at that and we say, Well, d- gee, I'm not there yet. But maybe if I keep growing this time next summer, I will be. Maybe if I I do a little bit better. Maybe if I grow up a little bit. Maybe if I can be a little bit more holy. Maybe if I can do a bit more for God's kingdom, then I can be made worthy of his kingdom. And so we throw ourselves into getting to work, right? Getting up and, and growing up and getting holier. And we, we keep up with our daily devotions. and we give a bunch of money to the church, or better yet, we sign up to go on some mission trip to somewhere that's hot and uncomfortable. right? And, and, and maybe that will prove that we've got it covered. Maybe then we'll be big enough and tall enough in holiness that we can be counted worthy. Of course, devotions are good. Giving is, is good. Mission trips are good things. And when they're empowered by God's Holy Spirit, when they are done and committed for the glory of Christ, they fall into this category that he's talking about, these works of faith by the power of God. It's a good thing. So my problem is not with that, but my problem is that the language in verse 11 is almost identical to the word in verse 5. It's a different form of the same word. And in both places, the idea of worthiness is not that something that God makes us so much as it is something God declares us. He is, in verse 11, still using courtroom language. The New American Standard Bible gets it right. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Paul is still talking about an action of God, his once-for-all verdict, that his people are counted worthy. No matter how tall or how short they might be in holiness and how how far they've managed to come yet. This is Pauline Theology 101. It's the idea that salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. From the choosing to the calling to the justifying to the glorifying. From the God who has predestined us to adoption to himself all the way to the plan for fullness at the end of time. All of it comes from the goodness of God through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. In fact, that's why Paul prays that not only will God count us worthy of his calling, but he will also fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. He prays for those things because he knows that apart from God's grace and strength, we will never produce them for ourselves. He knows that apart from the mercy of Christ, our hearts will never be inclined either to want or to do what God says is truly good for our souls. We might spend our time pursuing any number of things that humanity in its manifold wisdom has declared to be good. But we won't actually be spending our time or our efforts or our energies or our desires on what God says is good. Remember, it's still January after all. Not all of our New Year's resolutions have been broken yet. And that means that all around us, people are still pursuing the things that in the end of December, when they're unsatisfied with the life that they're currently living, all those things that they've said, this is my good resolve for 2023. This is how I'm going to get my act together. This is how I'm going to be a little bit better. Christians and non-Christians, we all do it. It's okay. You can admit that you've got resolutions too. But so many of those things amount to what? Something that's personal, something that's social, something that's, that's outright selfish. We call it a resolution, a good resolve, right? This year I'm going to be more organized. Okay. This year I'm going to be kinder to the people around me. Great. This year I'm going to be less stressed. This year I'm going to focus more on pursuing the things that make me happy. That's what so many of our good resolves amount to. If our hope is, is that we can somehow drum up enough holiness by ourselves, by our own good resolves, and our own works of faith, we're sunk. This is the best we come up with. This is the wisdom of the world. You know, you really ought to put some boundaries in your relationships. Because, you know, you interact with so many people, and they're, they're not good for the way you feel about yourself. And so if they say something that offends you, cut them off. There's a resolution for January 2023. There's a good resolve. There's a work of faith. Absolutely not. Yesterday at our presbytery meeting, one of the brothers was praying during our worship service, and this is what he prayed. He said, Oh, that people might begin to care about their eternal souls. That the majority of people would long for more than mere existence in this world, that's a prayer we ought to pray. That's a prayer that takes hold of God's vision for the future and begins to apply it to where we find ourselves. It's a prayer that recognizes that apart from the power of God to make us long for heaven, we'll never actually even want it at all. It's a prayer that recognizes that without the grace of God to give us faith, we will spend our days like those poor mud pie making children that C.S. Lewis tells us about. You already know the quote, right? Half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, we're far too easily pleased. Now what does it mean? Well, it means that in our faith, and it means that in our prayer, we ought to be taking our cues from the Lord. Eugene Peterson says that prayer is answering speech. There's another way we can put it. Prayer works backward. Right, prayer, prayer begins from what God has promised and then teaches us to learn what we need from Him. That's what prayer does. You notice that Paul prays that God would do the thing that he says he's got in store for them. He's not finding some other way around. He's saying, here's God's good gift for you. My prayer is that he would do it. Sometimes we feel ashamed to pray for those things that God has said he will do. That's exactly what prayer ought to do. It seeks out what the Lord has said he will promise and what he will accomplish in time and eternity, and it presents those promises back to the Lord in the form of an ask. The old Puritan, Robert Trail, said it this way. He said, the great work of Christians is to turn promises into prayer. And the Lord has promised. Has he not? The Lord has promised for his church that he will count his faithful ones worthy of the kingdom when Christ returns. And so Paul prays for the church, God, will you count them worthy of their calling? God has promised that he will glorify Jesus in the saints on the day of judgment. So Paul prays for the power of God to sustain the church so that, he says, the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. You can multiply examples just as often as you can multiply promises from the word of God. The Lord has promised to sanctify his bride by the washing of water with the word. The Lord has promised to work all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. The Lord has promised to conform his children to the image of his son from one degree of glory to another, from one day until the next, until that day when we see him and are made like him as he is. And when the believer reads those words, we ought to work backward. We pray, yes, Lord, do more of that. Do more of what you're promising to do. Glorify your name in the salvation of your people because we can't do it. That's what prayer does. True prayer is almost always a variation of the one that Jesus gave to us. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth, just as it is in heaven. May the Lord work that prayer into the faith of his people. May he do that for you, dear church. May he fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him. May the Lord count you worthy of his kingdom. Let's pray together. O gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We confess that we do not deserve any grace or mercy. We thank you that you've promised it. We thank you that you know those who are yours. You've called and predestinated them in love. You've given assurance that you will call them to yourself in time and justify them, that they too may be glorified at the last day with Christ. We pray, O Lord, that this would be our hope, that this would be our prayer, We ask that you would work faith in the lives of your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.